Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. If you know me, you know that I love looking for the best marketing examples out there and adding them to my swipe file. And one of the examples I always go back to is Morning Brew's referral program. Depending on how many people you refer to the newsletter, you can win different prizes and keep track of how close you are to the next prize. It's genius, and I know it's been a huge part of their success. And if you want to set up something similar for your newsletter, Sparkloop is the tool for you. They allow you to set up your own referral program in just minutes. Check them out at sparkloop.app EIM and tell me what you think of them. On the show today is Jay Akunzo. Jay is the founder of Marketing Showrunners, which helps marketers create their audience's favorite show. He's also a keynote speaker and consultant who's worked with brands like Drift and Wistia to create some of my favorite shows. I wanted to bring Jay on because he's the guy when it comes to creating a podcast or video series for your business. I first came across Jay when he created a podcast series for Drift, and since then he's created many more amazing series like How I Made It for Podia and Against the Grain for Help Scout. He also has some great thoughts on how to define a show premise, which also translates really well to positioning, designing value propositions, and creating a pitch that resonates. You'll hear about why he loves podcasting and the unique opportunity it presents to connect with your audience, how to develop a strong premise for your show so that you don't blend in with every other generic show out there, and his approach to prepping for interviews, interviewing, and crafting a compelling story. To start, did you ever think that you'd be teaching marketers how to create their favorite show for a living? <laughs> uh, not this specifically, but I think if you look backwards at my career and just like the body of work, I have like this bizarre collection of things that you can kind of like pluck out of context and be like, oh, that person could maybe make some shows or, or teach it. So like writing has always been the spine. I've always identified myself as a writer. Like if I walk into a room where people had no clue what it is you or I do for a living, I would just say I'm a, I'm a writer. And if people ask what about, I would say th- something like creativity in business or, or you know things like that. Uh, and their eyes would glaze over. They'd walk away and I'd be like, hold on. I haven't seen people in person in months and months. Please don't go. Right. But uh, I'd still say I'm a writer, I guess is where I'm going with that. But then around that, I've always done like all these kind of crazy side projects driven by writing, but also just like the curiosity to make stuff. Um, like I think... There's, there's like a synapse that doesn't fire correctly in my brain, uh, to use a quote from a friend of mine, Scott Stratton. Like, I see someone's work I admire, and I'm like, I want to do that. I want to make that. And I think some people, a rational person, sees work from people they admire, and they're like, oh, I could never. I could never mm, do that. But right. something in my brain is broken <laughs> and is going, hey, you're delusional enough to think you can mimic I don't know, Anthony Bourdain, but about a business topic and in audio form instead of TV, right? And it's like, cool, let me try. And so I think it's, it's I guess the, the, the sum up of all this is the spine is writing. I've always dabbled in other stuff, audio, video, you know, a public speaking career. And if you collect all that together, that, that's kind of what you need to develop a show and, and host or produce it is you kind of have to have writing lead the way and idea development lead the way. And then you need this like halo of other skills to at least be dangerous when you hire a freelancer, if not do it yourself. Yeah, I, I also know that you come from a, a long line of extroverts. Uh, I believe you said that it's a few, goes back a few generations and that a room full of uh, just a few who would sound like, you know, there was 10 times as many of you. 
Um, does that also play a part in your career, the way that you interact with people, the work that you create? So Corey, you and I have DM'd about show running and interviewing people and creating shows. That's like one of those example questions where almost nobody's ever said that to me ever. Yes. Uh, yep. Putting that in the wind column right away. Achievement uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's a good question. So, uh, and I totally forgot what the question was actually. <laughs> Has being an ex extrovert and influenced the way that you work or the work that you there do? There you go. Yeah. I, I do feel like I'm kind of like the epitome of what the John Mulaney bit uh, a while ago was where he's like, I admire my wife so much. She doesn't care what anyone else thinks of her. But when I walk down the street, my wife thinks that I'm running for the mayor of nothing. I need <laughs> everyone else to like me so much. And it's like, I kind of feel that way. I, I just draw my energy from other people. So public speaking is like an addiction. Being on a stage in front of people and getting laughs and applause. And it's like, whoa, what is that feeling? I want to pursue that. Uh, having someone say something nice about a thing I've published. Oh my goodness, that sounds amazing. I, and it feels amazing. So I think being an extrovert, um, maybe it gives me two things. One is this relentless pursuit of that feeling for better and oftentimes for worse. And that's a whole bag of cats we can talk about. Uh, and then the second thing is this ability, I think, and I don't think it's maybe extrovert specific, but maybe just part of the way I am to be really sensitive to how others are feeling and what they're going through. Like I want to connect so badly with other people that I've had to wade into the waters some people prefer to avoid in the corporate world, which is like the human experience stuff, the emotional stuff, the things that aren't just like how to's and tips and tricks, or like Brene Brown has this phrase, gold plated grit, where it's like your story arc is oversimplified because your tension is oversimplified. Like we wanted, we set out to build this business or I wanted a creative career. And here's this one thing that went bad, but now everything's great. And let's talk for hours and hours about how everything is great. Right. So I think like maybe that extra version is a part of that. Um, but I think it's certainly like the, the willingness to want to kind of be sensitive to what others are going through. Um, and I think like, I think the world just needs more sensitive people. I, I don't mean like weak and, mm. and I, like, I don't, I don't necessarily wilt under pressure. I don't think, I think it's just, I, I'm very like, um, I take in a lot, like it sits with me and, and it affects me. And sometimes that causes me to spiral, but I think other times I'm able to like redirect it into creating things. Hmm. I, I want to dig into the, uh, what you mentioned about sort of chasing that feeling. This is probably, um, there's probably some recency bias in here right now. Cause I'm, uh, reading the practice by Seth Godin. And so I'm wondering like, how do you balance chasing that feeling and sort of always looking for uh, the next, you know, feedback loop or sort of um, reaction or, or even just connection with someone versus yeah. loving the process of the work itself and sort of sitting down and uh, more the art of it. The, my, my all-time favorite quote about creativity, and I don't think I'm alone in saying this, is what Ira Glass said about the difference between your skills and your taste. So this is a famous quote. If you just search for Ira Glass, the gap you'll find it. Um, but he says, when you get started doing creative work, you have a certain sense of taste and that's what brought you into that work. But when you're first starting out, your taste doesn't match your ability to create the work. So the things you're putting out don't quite match your taste and you can tell, and you're like aspiring for it to be great. You want it to match your taste, but it's not quite there. And so there's this gap that exists, he says. And the only way to get over that gap or close that gap is you have to put out a lot of work. So he talks about put yourself on a deadline, ship something every week and just put out a lot of work. And 
you know, I'd couple that with another thing that one of my favorite podcasters said, Jad Abumrad, who's the creator and host of Radiolab, where he's like creating these ambitious things that they do with story and sound design and reporting. It's a really ambitiously produced show, Radiolab. He says, it's like, it's kind of like meandering through a jungle and eventually you pop out and it's like, you've done it. You've found clarity. You finished the piece, mm. but you have no idea how you did it. You can't like you know, replicate it because it wasn't this nice linear path and you think you can and then you get back into the next thing and it's a mess again. And I think it's a sign you're improving. And so I think, you know, if you take those two ideas and sort of smush, smush them together, I think where that lands is if you have a sense of like taste or ambition or desire to be better, your work will almost never feel like a straight march. It'll always feel like you're hacking through a jungle. So you're better off picking up a machete and just taking swing after swing every single day because eventually your taste might say, oh, that's pretty good. Even if it's just a fleeting moment, because then your taste is almost like moving chains down a football field that moves even further, right? Because you're like, well, I right. can do the work that 10 years, years ago I couldn't today, but now I want to do the work that I maybe can't do for 10 more years, right? Mm. So you're always kind of pushing yourself further and further. So it's, it's a little bit of a sloppy answer because it's just so hard to, to sum it up. But I think it's like having that grand aspiration and then making sure you're at least taking a step forward every day. It's, mm. It can be that simple. Like it's just the mess of moving forward all the time. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of taking a lot of swings, uh, you've taken a lot of swings in your career and you <laughs> sort of alluded to it uh, earlier on, but I would love for, if you could just to walk me through like your career up into today, you know, today you're the founder of marketing showrunners, uh, which is essentially a, a media and education company. You also have the three clips podcast underneath that. You've also written a book. Like, could you walk me through sort of um, step by step what's led you to where you are today? Yeah, I think like I just I want to spend all my time making things to help makers or talking to people who made things about how they made it. Mm. Like, I just love that. I could live in that world. When a comedian talks to another comedian about the craft of being a comedian, you know, you you could paint like ceramic coasters with pictures of orange frogs for a living. And if you feel a sense of wonder at that work and you love the process, I want to hear you talk about it. It just, I just get lost in that stuff. And, you know, then I ended up in the marketing world where we just lost sight of that, where we're just basically, we want creativity to be a button you press or a, a templated list of things that you do, uh, an automated approach, uh, a hack, a cheat, you know, and, and that, that stuff just pisses me off to no end. And it's like, you, you, not only is it missing the joy of it all, you're also hurting your ability to get what you want when you think that way, which is a result. Um, it's like, everybody's like chasing that, that quick result at the expense of the ability to do things longer term that are better and drive better results, you know? Mm. Um, so anyways, the way I ended up here is I think there was kind of like three main phases of my career. I wanted to be a sports journalist, but in 2008, print media, not so hot. Uh, right. And so I ended up uh, very lucky got a, getting a job at Google in sales. And I hated the job, but I loved everything around it. Like I hated going back to work and putting my head down to do it, which was a huge problem because that's what you should like most of your job. But I liked right. the friends I made, the brand I worked for. I met my wife day one at Google. So can't ask really? for a better stop than that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. First day on the job at Google, which incidentally was my last day at Google wearing khakis. Um, <laughs> Cause I walked in thinking I'm a professional professional now and everyone's wearing shorts and t-shirts. And, uh, and I'm like, well, I'm a professional professional now and I'm, you know, in sales for Google. 
and I'm just shaking hands with all these people that I'm meeting. And it's like, first person comes up, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Jay. Second person comes up, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Jay. My future wife walks up. Hello. <laughs> it was just like, oh, okay. Uh, so yeah, can't really say I wish I didn't work for Google. Yeah, um, yeah. But what Google showed me was what I didn't want to do which is I didn't, I don't love late stage capitalism. I don't love hyper growth, everything growth at all costs, everything at scale. I was profoundly uncreative there because it basically just was a job of calling advertisers and telling them how to bid on their keywords. That didn't interest me. Um, it also taught me a valuable lesson, which is that like control and certainty in a career are mutually exclusive. You can't have the same amount of control and certainty. They, they don't exist to the same degree. They are, they are not mutually exclusive. They are inversely proportional. Let's say it that mm -hmm. way. The more control you have over your work, the less certainty you're going to have. Certainty over the paycheck coming in, over the business being there tomorrow, over your job being there, over the direction you should run. At Google, I had total and complete certainty, but I had zero control. And I wanted to have more control. I wanted to be creative. So I wound up at a really tiny startup which kind of like deposited me into this content marketing thing that I'd never heard of as a aspiring sports journalist. Hmm. And I was hooked. I was like, wait a second, the business model is not suffering like an ad driven media company. And I get to make stuff like I, this is great. This is what I want to do. Now I started running up against a lot of barriers and problems with all the marketing tropes and themes and best practices. But I found myself being like, I can make real change and make great things if I just stay here. And I, I kind of never looked back, but evolved from startup to, I worked for HubSpot very briefly at a VC firm. I led their brand team, um, which was me, <laughs> but I, I was yeah. basically in charge of their brand, creating lots and lots of content and along came a, a show in all of that. And I was hooked on that. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 40 years is basically taking all the stuff I learned about being a marketer, taking all of these desires I have to create stuff and making shows for brands or teaching people how to make shows. Um, mm. And it's, it's been a profoundly rewarding experience so far. Yeah, what, what strikes me um, walking through those different phases is that it almost seems like uh, sort of you, you had this kind of deep conviction about uh, content and sort of the creative process. And then when you were put into these situations like being a salesman at Google or sort of trying to fit into the marketing team at a startup, it almost like you kind of like rejected it, but you still made your way through it, even though it never like you never fully adopted those ways. You you still kind of like fought against it and struggled to uh, preserve kind of the creativity and sort of content that you saw, like the vision that you had. Yeah, I kind of I use an analogy to describe that. It's almost like I'm the Winter Soldier from Marvel or Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe. So for those who aren't total nerds like me, or I guess like millions and millions of mainstream viewers now because yeah, of the MCU. Yeah, it's mainstream. But, you know, just a quick sum up. The Winter Soldier was one of Captain America's buddies who was lost during battle, but was really abducted by the enemy, experimented on. They gave him like a metal arm and all these superpowers and super strengths, <laughs> brainwashed him into doing a lot of bad. But when he woke up, finally, he went back to the good side and now he's a superhero. The thing is, mm. he wouldn't actually be a superhero if he wasn't actually adopted or, or acquired, let's say, by... The bad guys. I mm. feel like myself and lots of other people I admire, because um, I am not a superhero, but a lot of people I admire that I think are, they spend some time kind of in the, the camp of the people they disagree with, right? 
not because they're bad people. They're not, they're not villains. It's just that I don't a- agree with this short-termism in marketing or everything has to be viral or everything has to generate a result right now and be measured down to the minutia, like all these best practices hampering a lot of creativity and marketing. I just fundamentally disagree with it, but I understand how people like that think. I understand marketing. I understand all these things. I was given a metal arm. And now that I'm awake and trying to help advance this cause of people making what matters in the world, I can tell the creative side of this community I'm building, hey, listen, you need to translate what you're doing over to the business side, the people that don't think like you. Then I can tell the people on the business side, hey, listen, you got to gotta really take seriously what these creators are capable of doing. And so I now can sit right in the middle and like navigate both. Or for my own projects, I can build a meaningful business out of my craft. None of that would be possible if I didn't spend some time in sales and marketing. So it's mm. like, I kind of, another way to say it is I, I pledged sales and marketing. I never want to do it again. I'm in the place I want to be. I don't want to pledge again, but I'm, I think I'm better for it. You know, I have these powers, I have these abilities that I, I don't think I would have otherwise. And it pains me to see so many creative people wanting to create great work and they never start or they feel handcuffed by the people they work with or for. And it's like, those are the people that I want to help kind of unleash or unbottle from a, an awkward situation. Hmm. I want to get uh, back to the show running eventually, but I have to sort of satisfy my own curiosity here and just poke into a couple of bits in there as well, which is uh, you mentioned uh, writing a book and public speaking. Uh, we yeah. can go through each of those uh, independently, but not everyone can say that they've written uh, a book or even a, a successful book, you know, according to your own standard. Um, what was it like writing and, and launching the book? It was, it was awesome. Honestly, I love writing so much and I loved writing a book. I always wanted to write a book. So it felt like I was on that path and it was super enjoyable. I, I will say, I know a lot of I, the, the answer you're supposed to give is like, Oh, it was so hard. And like, <laughs> Oh, I, I, you know, I love having written. I don't love writing. And there's like these cliches. Like I feel like an imposter. I have imposter syndrome and it's fine if you do. And a lot of people do. And I would encourage you to find ways to push through it and Hopefully I can help in some small way, but I almost feel like an imposter in the face of imposter syndrome. It's like, I feel like I was put on this earth to make stuff. And and here's the thing. I never feel satisfied that I can make good stuff. I always feel like I, I could be so much better than I am right now, but the actions of making are where I get lost in flow. And so make writing this book, I was like, this is awesome. Holy crap. I'm writing a book. What? You know? So I enjoyed the heck out of it. It was hard, but at no point was I like, oh, I just want this to be over. Um, no, and I think a couple things that helped me. One is I had a really great mentor named Andrew Davis who kind of took me under his wing for my speaking business. And he also helped me build out the early version of Unthinkable, which was my first truly like, I'm going to go for it kind of podcast, um, very narrative style. And it was about creativity and marketing and all these messy things. And slowly over time, the premise got tighter and more focused. And I was able to look back and pull from all those stories and all these insights from people I'd spoken to or things I'd learned and use that as the spine of the book and then flesh it out. So it became an entire publication, entire book rather, um, once I started writing the outline. So that was like a sneaky advantage that I think made the process easier is Mm. I think a lot of people think you can't do the meaningful project unless you're the expert. What I was shown through Andrew, through the show and doing all these episodes was actually, it's better to be an explorer than an expert. It's better to say, I'd like to share with you the stuff I've found 
than the stuff I know. The stuff you know is profoundly limiting. And there's a dozen, if not thousands of other experts who claim to be an expert in your field already. Like the world doesn't need more experts. But if you're willing to ask, uh, in Drew's words, questions Google can't answer, now you feel much less like an expert and more like an explorer. And you can say to people, it's meaningful, right? We want to get to that mountain peak in the distance. Don't you agree? The status quo where we're stuck here is broken. Well, let's go. I don't have the answers. I'm on the journey. Come with me. And so you can invite them, invite them to your show, invite them to your speech, invite them to your course, invite them to your book, right? So for me, the book was almost like for newcomers, it was that journey in brief for the people that have been with me on the show and the accompanying newsletter for 150 episodes at that point, it was like the culminating thing. This like, mm. this like artifact. It was like, I've written this book. You're going to recognize a bunch of stories I've added to them. And then you're going to have a whole lot more detail, a whole lot more story and science and all these heuristics to help you. Um, but it was by no means like me just releasing it to the world to be like, I know all this stuff and now you do too. It was like, <laughs> I've been exploring this stuff with a great group of listeners and subscribers and I'm inviting new people to come with me and I'm sort of rewarding other people who have stuck with me. Mm, yeah. And, and with the public speaking, you mentioned earlier that it's just something that you love to do and that you've craved to do for a long time. Yeah. But like, how did you get into that? Like, how did that uh, start to become like a key piece of, you know, who you are as a, a keynote yeah. speaker and something that you wanted to do? I, I think, you know, I, I, I remember launching uh, Boston Content, which is a community meetup group in Boston for content creators and marketers. And I started, it started as a drink group with uh, my co-founder at the time, Aristia Rosenberg, who is a filmmaker that used to work for Hill Holiday, which is an agency in Boston. Hmm. And the two of us just both had this title director of content and both did wildly different things. Basically, I led a, an editorial and design team at a startup and she led the video production team at, at agency. But we both have the same title. We both like the idea of creating stuff for a living. And we're both new to this idea of content marketing because um, back then that wasn't really much of a phrase yet. And so we started having these meetups and we brought more people and we had drinks and then panels and then the whole events and an online job board and newsletter kind of grew beyond what we wanted it to, which was awesome. Uh, we ended up handing it off. It's now on its third generation of leadership, which is awesome. Um, and so, but at the time it was like, okay, I'm kind of the steward of this community along with Aristia. So I started giving some impromptu talks and started moderating panels, started getting more visibility through that side project into the Boston tech and marketing communities and started getting invited to speak. And um, I remember one of the talks I gave, I was a backup choice uh, from this event organizer who had selected my then colleague at HubSpot who ran our demand gen team and I ran the content team. And she's like, I can't make it. They're looking for someone else from HubSpot. And she tapped me. So I was like, yeah, I've, you know, I've done some talks locally. Where's this talk? And she's like, Orange County, California. Uh. So I was like, well, that's kind of cool. Like I'll fly across the country and give a speech. Feels kind of badass. And um, <laughs> I remember I, I woke up that morning and I was like, what the heck am I doing here? Like, what am I even going to, I knew what I was going to talk about, but it's like, what am I going to say that they haven't already heard? And, you know, I just kind of got up on stage. I talked about the process that we used on our team. It was very practical, but I tried to tell some stories. I tried to ham it up and be, you know, funny in some ways. And I was like, wow, this is an awesome feeling. I think I want to do this more. And as I got off stage, I remember seeing Joe Polizzi, who's the founder and CEO of Content Marketing Institute um, in the back of the auditorium. He'd given a talk before me and he was just on his phone. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go talk to this guy. He's like one of those avatars I've seen on Twitter a lot. I'm going to talk to him. 
And we just kind of hit it off philosophically. We just nerded out about content things. And he invited me to, to write for the blog. And that was a huge moment where I was like, I think I'm just going to mm. take a chance and say hello. And it honestly changed the tra trajectory of my career a little bit. Like I do owe Joe a debt. Wow. I started writing for CMI. I applied to speak at their annual event, Content Marketing World. The way that works is you get higher and higher. If you get higher ratings from the audience, they give you a bigger stage. So I went hmm. from a side little talk, just like my Boston content or HubSpot speeches to a kind of main track um, keynote with a lot of other people to then I, I won the opening keynote to the whole event of 4,000 people based on my, wow. my ratings. No one knew who the hell I was. <laughs> Most people still don't. Um, that's fine. I have a chip on my shoulder. I'm Sicilian. Uh, and so like that, that to me, like, and the reason I want to stop this rant here, Corey, because I just want whoever's hearing this, if they haven't tuned out during this rant to just be like, Oh, what it took for this guy being interviewed to, to find an inflection point was just shrugging and saying, I'm going to go talk to this other person that I admire. That was, that was really it. You know, and then, and then, yeah, he, he showed me a door and I had to push through the door and work hard. I, sure. But, and, you know, I had to win each bigger and bigger stage granted, but it started with something that was very easy to do. Like it could start with an email, a tweet, uh, an introduction to somebody, like just asking somebody for help or their opinion or like a small new relationship and parlaying that into the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Like I, I hate this guruism we have going on where the personalities are so revered, even in marketing. You know, it's like everybody's out there trying to be like, I can teach you to do this. Screw you. It's not about you, right? right. It's, it's about what the craft is. It's about the process of doing the work. So I don't want to glorify all the shit I've been through because it, it wasn't all that special. I just talked to Joe and Joe gave me this little jog to the left to take and, and I took it and some good things started to happen. Hmm. So so getting into, into show running, um, a man of your talents, who's a great public speaker, a writer who has many different interests, why shows? You know, like what, what is it about podcasts and videos and sort of docuseries that really gets you fired up and that made you want to, you know, really lean into that medium? I think at once I love the performance elements of it and also the ability to go deep in a world that's trending shallow. There's no algorithm to game. There's no like, uh, you know, there, there's no like... Um, trying to figure out how to make yourself instantly famous, which is spilling from these bullshit Instagram influencers and all those people <laughs> over to B2B. Like you're seeing all these personalities emerge that are like, you know, you got all this, the trappings of what they're trying, like basically they could go and sell some shoes on Instagram, but they're in B2B selling software or something. Right. And it's like, we can set all this rush for attention and sensationalism aside and actually explore nuance and actually go deeper on a theme. And oh, by the way, that's a great way to earn trust and love. You know, instead of grabbing attention, you hold it. And the only tactic that works when you want to hold attention is you have to provide a better experience. And so I love that. You know, I think rather than take a funnel view of marketing, where the goal is usually everybody retreats to awareness, you can take a, like a concentric circle view. And the whole goal is to get people tighter and tighter to the middle. Mm. And that's where super fans live. And the outermost ring is total strangers. And I think if marketers viewed marketing not as the funnel, but as concentric circles, they'd realize the job is to almost never go cold to anybody because everybody can reach some people. And those people should be made into super fans, giving them the things that they can stick with over time that earn that deep trust and love such that as they become super fans, 
they then go from that center little hub in the concentric circles to the outermost ring, total strangers for you for free. It's like whatever you think about marketing, if you think in human and emotional terms, like I love, or you think about the dollars and cents, I feel like this makes perfect sense. It's like, it's inefficient to go cold to strangers, Hmm. but we've convinced ourselves that the assets we're building have actually been developed enough and are differentiated enough and resonant enough that the people we're reaching are going to talk about us, are going to share us with others or go deeper with us themselves and take more actions on our behalf. And we're going part way and being like, well, it's not working. We're not getting organic word of mouth. So we got to go cold to other people. And I'm like, you don't have a distribution problem. You have a product problem. You don't have a hack and cheat problem. You have an experience problem. So a show is, is all those philosophies bottled up into one thing. It's deep, creative, performative. It could be differentiating and it serves the audience by giving them a better experience instead of trying to find increasingly clever ways to trick your way into people's lives. Hmm. So if someone were, you know, considering starting a show, they just think, oh, that's amazing. I think I'll just go start a podcast or, you know, do some video interviews or something like that. Uh, you know, how would you advise them um, to decide if they should or if they shouldn't? Yeah. So we're speaking to marketers here, right? So I'd say, don't make a podcast. Don't make a video series. Don't even make a show. Create brand IP. That's hmm. the first step. What you're doing is developing an idea that is proprietary to you, a philosophy, a concept. And in show parlance, that's called a premise. But what precedes the premise, which is often like a pithy but powerful articulation of the idea in the show, to get to that pithy but powerful thing, you have to develop the idea behind it, right? The idea going into your show. And that is so often the thing that's not developed. I feel like it's the number one reason shows fail, especially in B2B, especially by marketers in, in any niche is the idea driving the show is not good enough. It's not worthy of people's significant attention or word of mouth. It's not memorable. It's yet another instead of the only. And mm -hmm. so when you're going to develop brand IP, like think of it this way, you need to pass the t-shirt test. Would somebody proudly wear a saying, a pithy phrase, the name of your show on their chest in public? Would somebody, would you be able to pluck out the idea from your show where it all begins and feels deepest, but make it a newsletter? Make it a blog series, make it an event series, sell the merch if you're going in that direction, right? It's something proprietary. It's a theme that you own. And I think that's the trick. Everybody's talking about owned audiences. You do not own your audience, but you can own the idea in their minds, right? And so what, what idea do you try to own? And there's a really simple way to force yourself to think about this. I call it the XY premise pitch, which just runs like this. This is a show about X. Unlike other shows about X, only we, Y. And almost nobody can answer that question. That's the problem, is that's what mm. you need to get to. This is a show about topics. Unlike other shows and content about similar topics, because they do exist, that's not original. Unlike all those other sources, you could get this general information from, these topics from, only on our show do we what? And it has to be stated with plain language. It can't just be like, we go deeper. We are better. We actually get the stories. We actually get the details. Everybody's out there claiming the same thing. And as soon as I poke at that, you're back on your heels and you have to defend your project in paragraphs, but you don't want paragraphs. You want a premise. So this is a show about X. Unlike other shows about X, only we, Y. Your one goal when you want to get into show running is to develop your ideas such that you can state that little formula 
in very succinct form and your audience goes, oh my God, yes, that shows for me. Hmm. That's, that's pretty, it's pretty fascinating because um, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, designing value propositions and positioning your product and sort of taking a very um, business and product uh, view towards, you know, what you're, what it is that you're selling, but no one really takes that same approach into the marketing, the distribution, the content side of things, right. Of what can we only do, or what is the sort of thing that we offer? Like you said, what is the brand IP that differentiates us from anyone else? And you know, you, you hear people around saying, uh, oh, well, you know, your distribution can be your uh, competitive advantage or your marketing can be, um, you know, what sets you apart, but it doesn't really ring true until you understand um, uh, or until you have a really well-defined premise. Um, yeah. No, well, the thing I, is no one wants to create uh, commodity content, right? So how right. do you really uh, create a strong premise? Yeah. Well, I think one of the best ways to start um, actually, before we get to the start, well, we should touch on that. Let me yeah. give you an example of where this goes. Um, cause I think like th this, this might cause some light bulbs to, to go off in people's minds. So, uh, Lessonly is a software startup in Indianapolis. They sell learning and development tools. So if you're in sales or customer support and you want to teach your team how to be great at their jobs, you, you can use Lessonly. According to their director of marketing, Ben Battaglia, who I interviewed on, on three clips about, about their show that I'm about to talk to you about, according to Ben, they have 80 direct competitors in the United States alone. They all sell the same stuff. They are not going to win on feature. They're not going to win on product. That is commodified, period. Hmm. Even if you have some differentiated features, that's a very thin moat that with just a little bit of effort, a competitor can step over. Right. Where they're going to win is in their knowledge and insight into the customer and their ability to own certain themes and beliefs. So what they could do, what most of their peers would do when they launch a podcast, let's say, is they would try to interview leaders in success teams and sales teams about how they're successful. How do you do great work in those roles over and over and over? Everybody else would do it that way. Every other blog, every other newsletter, Twitter chat, event series, you name it. Forgettable, totally commodified content. You own nothing in the market. But what Lessonly noticed is that the most important customers to their business, in other words, their highest lifetime value customers, their most lucrative, their most engaged in the platform, seem to gravitate towards a suite of features all labeled practice. So people would come in looking for these tools to help salespeople like practice cold calls and, and customer support people practice writing tickets back to their, uh, their customers. The practice tools were incredibly important to Lesson Lee's business. So they created a podcast called Practice First. And this show is pitch perfect in terms of developing brand IP. Practice First is not a parade of experts in their customer set talking about how they are experts. It is about trying to elevate the role of practice in these fields, because if you see practice as a thing you can do, you can do better work. The problem is, and this is where it begins, the problem, the frustration you feel, and that's when you're en route to a premise, the frustration is most people in those jobs don't view their work as something you can practice. So they wanna elevate the role of practice. So that yes, they talk to a few sales reps and sales leaders, but they mostly talk to Olympians and coaches and sommeliers about how they practice. How do the world-class performers practice. 
or mm. get a touch on their career a little bit, but we're really going to dive into how they practice so that you listening can go and practice too. So now when you think of the word practice and you're in that niche, you think of Lessonly. Lessonly has developed brand IP. It's driven through the show, but the idea, the premise supersedes the show and it can be repurposed anywhere you want. And I think to go back to the starting point, where does that begin? Frustration. Like this status quo is broken. I can envision a better way. And the gap between the two, the journey to close that gap between what sucks now and what would be better is called the show. So if you believe we should be thinking about practice more, if you believe in doing better work and you're in sales and support, join us as we try to figure out how this happens every episode. Come with us, right? Subscribe. Oh my gosh, what a show. Yeah, that, that's that's incredible. And I love how you tie it back to, again, the, the pain and the frustration because that's also where a lot of the product work starts, where most people start with their businesses. How can we build a product that solves this problem? And right. in this case, we're saying, how do we build content that solves this problem of people not... Uh, not engaging with the belief that they can practice their job or not right. uh, having the tools or resources, or maybe just uh, hearing th that it's possible for others and how they practice their job. Yeah. Um, and there's also, uh, so there's one part with the content, but then there's also how the actual brand and the people behind the brand play into the premise. Like what role does uh, the interviewer, the, the creator actually have within the premise of the show. Yeah. Well, I, m I mentioned before the danger, it's, it's really acute in B2B, but it's everywhere. Um, the danger is that you assume the role of the expert. And I think that that puts a really low ceiling on you because A, you're, you're, you're very replaceable. And B, you can only share the things that you yourself have done. And you've done a lot, I'm sure, but not enough to support a whole show. And Not so what much. you want to do is be an explorer because <laughs> you want to promote that positive change. Like most marketing panders to the status quo. It's like, you're asking this question. We're giving you this answer. It's like, this is what you want. Here is what you want. A great show says, I know that's what you want, but first I have to give you what you need so we can get there. Mm. Right? It's like, you need to have the taste. It's like being a great product manager or product designer, quite frankly. You own the problem as a product manager. You don't own the solution you own the problem. And then you go back to your teammates and with all the insights and taste and creativity and imagination and experiences you have, you propose a solution to your customer that they didn't know to ask for, right? A really bad product approach is to say, what features do you want us to build? We'll build it. Terrible. Right. That's what we right. do in marketing all the time. Terrible. Terrible. You're playing right into this giant collection of other peers of yours, trying to compete for those same little bits of mind space. It's not the right approach if you want to separate, if you want to push people forward and make them better. And that's really the key here is you have to be willing to say, some people are out there pandering to the status quo. We are here trying to make things better. We're trying mm. to push you. We're trying to make sure you know, actually, if you want to be great in sales and support, think about practice. I know you want to know what should your opening line be when you cold call. I know. But before you can get there with a real customer, let's take a step back. That's what you want. I'm going to give you what you need. You need to think about practice, right? So it's this idea that a show is a journey to bridge the gap between something broken and your vision for a better way. So what makes you that host worth sticking with is you're not the expert, you're the explorer. You're almost like that, the best possible peer. You're not the person they're tuning in to be like, I want to be so-and-so someday. And a happy byproduct is you end up that person, right? You end up the leader mm. and the inspirer. But mostly it starts with being like, Corey, man, I can't stand that this thing is broken. 
do you see that too? And you're like, yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, I think we should go that way. Do you agree? Yeah. Okay, cool. I have no idea how to get there. I got a machete. I'm going to take a swing to the left in this jungle. That's mm. episode one. Come with me. And then as you do that more and more, it starts to snowball and the movement grows, right? You get more people coming with you. And so you start to be viewed as the expert, the leader, the visionary, but the role in your mind is I am the guide. I am the explorer. I am not the expert. Hmm. And one of the things that you mentioned in, uh, in one of my favorite blog posts of yours is this idea between transactional content and transformational content. And again, you alluded to it before, and this is all kind of in that same vein, um, but just wanted to, to hash on it a little bit more because yeah, sure. um, like what you said, the, the, the commodity content is what is very transactional. It's, uh, here's yeah. what I want. Um, and then the marketer says, okay, let me go build out the page or let me go write the content or you know, uh, just basically meet people where they're at. Whereas a transformational content or transformational experience that says, um, I see where you're at and what you're struggling with. Um, I don't really have the answer yet. Or like you said, uh, before I give you what you want, let me tell you what you need. And let me take you on this journey to, uh, to teach you how to practice, right? Or to teach you what you need in order to get what you want ultimately. It's a fine line though, between uh, giving people what they want versus telling them what they need, right? How do you balance that in the content you're producing? Right. So let's parse, parse the first two terms so people get that. Yeah. And then we'll talk about wants versus needs. So transactional content, very simply, um, it's an injection of information. And the source of that information doesn't matter. Right. It's like that's why Google can start putting answers at the top of the page and every marketer freaks out. And it's like, I understand you feel like wronged by Google, but I think your problem is that you're not writing anything that an algorithm can't just put in a box at the top. Like you're just giving out these transactional things. So the user actually likes when Google does that, right? The user is like, oh, cool. I don't have to go through the hassle of reading these paragraphs you've prepared for me because the takeaway box from Google is a better experience for this type of information because that's what a transaction is. You just want to get past the transaction to be on your way. So like actually the ideal transaction is no transaction. Like the mm -hmm. ideal is I don't need you. I already know this information. The second ideal is... um you know, those chairs in the matrix that they sit in and they like download yes. <laughs> an ability to the back of their skull and, right. and Keanu, Keanu wakes up and he's like, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> That's a better experience for transactional content than having to read an article or worse, listen to a whole episode. Right. Mm. So if you start getting questions like, can I get the, the takeaways here or the, the TLDR box, or can I get a transcript for your show? I'm horrified because mm. the experience itself is something they're skipping right? They just want the information. I've, I've provided something transactional as a supplement. Great transcripts as a, uh, a way to help make your show more accessible to more people. Great transcripts, but because they're, most people are asking for it because they want the cheat code. They want the shortcut, which means your medium is not matching your value. You've provided mm -hmm. transactional content on the other end of the spectrum, transformational experiences. That's when you want to just be immersed in it. Like you're horrified to learn the spoiler of a great movie because you want to experience it for yourself. You are jealous when someone has watched Breaking Bad for the first time during the pandemic because you're like, I wish I hadn't seen Breaking Bad before and get to watch it for the first time during quarantine, right? Right. You, yep. you don't like being on the, the finish part of it. You want to be in it. You want to be immersed in it. You like the way it feels and you like the way you feel changed as a result of it. So transactional content absolutely can help people but transformational experiences changes them. 
Mm. And I think most of us should be in the change business and way too many of us are in the transaction business. So that's what I mean when I talk about the difference between those two types of content. Now, the difference between wants and needs is you have to start by meeting people where they're at. Like you have to, you can't write a blog post having a big fluffy idea. Fluffy is the wrong word, a big powerful idea that they've never heard of in the headline. You have to write a blog post that might open by saying how to measure a podcast because that's the problem they think they want to solve. Then you might convince them in the paragraphs once they're with you, hey, maybe you should think of it this way instead. You know, it's something I learned in in, uh, public speaking. When you're giving a keynote to the whole room and you're like the lone like paid speaker on the agenda, there's a lot of pressure to speak deeply to a diverse array of people. It's really hard to do. Like a breakout, Hmm. you're like, I'm only gonna talk about email marketing and I know people are selecting this track. Not so in the keynote, everybody's in the room. So how do you deliver? Well, you have to go all the way back to where they're at and try to say at first, this is our shared goal, right? And they nod. It's like, okay, and this is how we're coming at it. This is the status quo, right? And they nod. And then you go, okay, but here's the problems with that status quo. And they go, oh my gosh, I haven't thought of that. Or, oh yeah, I see that all the time. And then you say, okay, consider this thing you haven't considered before. In other words, I know you're asking for something you want. Consider that this is maybe what we need instead. If I just started with that, there's not enough rapport built, right? I have to align with basically saying, okay, so you want a show that grows, right? This is why my upcoming course is called Growable Shows, not Premise Development. Because most people want a growable show. Almost no people have developed their premise in a way that is capable of growing the show, right? The growable show, the the growability is lacking. And so you got to meet them with what they want and then within the experience, get them to what they need. So like Mm -hmm. a really simple way to do this is when you open a podcast, you can tease where you're going and then say, but before we get there, we have to take a step back. It's like a very common trope in podcasting because you're like, I know you want to get to the end of the story. I know you want to hear from Corey and his wisdom, but before we hear from Corey, a little context here, something you need. That's like a really technical way to do that. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, like you said, that the, the potential of a podcast uh, is, is really limited to the premise, right? And if you're not actually putting in the work to sit down and do the hard work of thinking, what is the transformation I want to put people through? What is, how do I want to immerse someone into my world and, and take them through and, and teach them? And while also meeting them where they're at, that, that is a difficult balance. Um, getting back to the premise, and you mentioned that sort of, uh, I know that you don't like the formulas and the, and the um, sort of you know magic, but you have a really great formula for the premise, which is what you call the, the XY, um, sort of you know where that meets, right? The combination of those. Uh, and, and that why piece is part of the key parts of it's not what you deliver, it's how you're delivering it. Right. And I think you call it the hook, right? Yep. Um, yeah. And that's sort of the unique angle or lens that you're, you're looking at a topic through, right? So what are the different types of hooks and like how should uh, marketers or showrunners think about creating a really strong hook for sure. their premise? Yeah. So, so the XY premise pitch, again, this is a show about X. Unlike other shows about X, only we Y really easy to come up with X, really hard to come up with Y. Because yeah. X is what you're exploring and Y is how you're exploring it. And both together are why the listener would care. So the what is always like the topics, the what, the how is the hook. So I've mentioned um, practice first is a good example. Lesson we show is, is their hook is a quest. The quest is like, we're on this journey to elevate 
practice. We're on this journey to change something, to understand something deeply. We're, we're on this quest and you're invited for the journey. Now, I think all shows are somewhat positioned as quests because they are episodic and serialized. It's about the time spent and the momentum of the community, but you can very overtly construct your experience as a quest. There's another version of practice first, which is uh, another type of hook. It's not the quest, it's the gimmick. So three clips, my podcast uses a gimmick. We're going to dissect a podcast by playing three of its clips. Um, Lesson Lee could have done a gimmick for practice first, which is, I don't know, give me the two to four techniques that you use to practice, or, you know, we're going to gamify this formula, this format of an episode somehow. So on the one hand, the quest, incredibly high impact, very difficult to implement. Uh, the gimmick on the other end of the spectrum, easy to implement because it's like a game mechanic almost. It's very dangerous to implement it because it can tip too far into the kitsch. You can remove your ability to say something. I'm thinking of like a marketing show that has CMOs eat progressively spicier wings, right. mimic, mimic hot ones from YouTube. Hot ones on YouTube is a channel about the intersection of pop culture, celebrities, and food. So when they interview celebrities, they eat food. Your brand in marketing or sales or HR, probably not about that. So don't mm. do the gimmick of hot wings, right? So right. gimmicks sound terrible, but can be used in delightful ways. So that's like the, the bookend. You can do a quest, you can do a gimmick. There's a gradation in between, um, which I'm, I'm happy to rifle off a few more. But the punchline to all this is you need to be able to articulate not only what you explore and how, and the problem with the most premises is they stop at what? They're like, this is a show about X, and so like the listener's going, so just like every other show about X, mm. right? It's like, why does this show have to exist? And there's only one defensible thing you can say. Well, cause it's from me or us. And that appeals to your, your most super of your super fans and nobody else. It's like, why would I get this from you? Because it's from you? Oh, okay. It's like, well, they better trust you already. And I'm guessing most people listening to this want a show that does reach beyond you know, their mom. Right. Right. And if, if you're not a high profile celebrity already, then you are probably not the most interesting thing about the show or the way that you're delivering that content. Sure. Right? Oh, totally. Dax Shepard interviewing celebrities. This is a show about celebrities and their lives and their work. Unlike other shows about celebrities and their lives and their work, only this show is hosted by Dax Shepard. Right. He is the hook, right? A Howard Stern interview. Howard is the hook. Most famous shows give us the wrong lesson because it doesn't seem like they have a hook. They have a hook. Also, they have years and years and years of perfecting the interview craft and all their incredible connections and the guests they book, right? The hook can be bigger and bigger names or the host's name being big. Most yeah. of us, that's a poor play because you're going to book a few good guests, but now the show gets worse once you get beyond those people, right? And you're also booking the same big name guests as all your peers. And those same big name guests are saying the same things because you're asking them the same things because mm -hmm. you don't really have a premise. So your premise is I'm now interviewing this person, right? But if you did have a premise, um, I'm thinking of a show called Three Books by Neil Pasricha. Neil is on a journey. So it's a bit of a quest, although he does a gimmick too. So he kind of does both. He wants to find the 1,000 most transformative books on earth ever written. Every episode, he interviews an illustrious guest. You've heard of them before. 
Judy Bloom, Malcolm Gladwell, Seth Godin. You've heard these people interviewed before, but not like on Neil's show because he mm. has this hook. He has the how. Every guest brings their three most transformative books from their lives, the three things they read that transformed them the most. So sure, you learn about Seth Godin's philosophy on marketing like you would learn about that if Corey interviewed him. But you do learn a lot more and they spend more time on the book part of it, right? So a premise allows you, yes, sure, keep booking the big name guests, but you're not gonna hear that guest the same way on any other show. So back to the idea of brand IP, you still have something proprietary, but you gotta have that hook. Hmm. So let's say that someone has a really strong premise. Uh, they've defined the topic. They have a strong hook. They've sort of defined everything. Now, one of the other things that you need to do is you need to be able to extract great content from the guest or from, who, you know, basically you need to be able to, uh, to create great content, whether that's from yourself or from someone else. Um, and a lot of that comes down to, like I said, the interview format where, yeah. uh, especially if you're narrating or creating the, the, the content yourself, you're still probably wanting to gather content from someone else. So what can interviewers do to get better material from or for the episodes? Yeah, I think like most people think it's about the questions you ask. I think it's really about the environment you create. It, think of interviewing as a dance. It's, it's not a straightforward march. It's a dance. And sometimes with some guests, you have to be a little more forceful in how you lead. And sometimes you kind of like see them wobbling to the left and you have to gently direct them with a hand over to the right. Like it's really not about the preparation questions. It's hmm. about your preparation, not about the questions that emerge from it. Those are just launching points for different lines of interestingness. So the way you create the environment, the way it feels more like a dance than a straight march, it's every interaction you have leading up to the moment you hit record. You know, doing prep calls to try and hunt out interestingness or do what, uh, what Kristen LaFrance over at Shopify calls energy checks for her show. Mm. She's going to do an energy check with you. And I, I love that phraseology because it's like, it does describe what you're kind of doing as a host. It's like, is this person mellow or excitable? Do I have to dial it up or down? Do I have to dial them up or down? And let me get a couple threads to emerge that we talk about, like stories and anecdotes and insights they have that I'll stop them if they start to pull it on our prep call and we'll pull it together on the actual call, on the recording. So the prep calls can help um, establishing that rapport yet again the moment they arrive. Not to be like, I'm going to run you through a list of housekeeping. My name is blah, blah, blah. The show is about blah, blah, blah. The audience <laughs> is so-and-so. Helpful. Don't get me wrong. But it's setting this environment of like a checklist and an official, official type feel. And then the moment you hit record becomes a moment. And so people stiffen up and they're like, cool, I'm going to switch on my performer face and voice. And they start getting what my friend Ron Tite, uh, who hosts a great podcast called The Coup, uh, Ron, Ron says he gets pitch slapped by executives sometimes or authors. And you have to work around that, right? It's like, I've heard this sound bite before from you, man. Cut mm -hmm. it out. Well, if you don't get good material from your guest, it's not their fault. It's yours. And so you have to create the right environment. Um, and I've mentioned a couple like kind of specific things. I mean, one more really specific tactic is when, when I notice someone is stiff, even before I hit record, but sometimes I've interrupted people like a couple questions in, I basically say, hey, uh, Corey, I'm getting a little wonkiness on the audio. I just want to check your levels really quick. Um, I'm going to cut this part out, by the way. Do you have any pets at home? So I will ask you authentically right now, Corey, do you have any yep. pets at home? Oh yeah, I do. I have a a, a black pug. A black pug? Why yeah, pug? Yeah, Remy. Oh, what's, what's I love wait, pugs. You love pug? Why? Um, my dad had them growing up, and I grew up with them in my house always. And they just have the the craziest personalities. They're just a uh, little balls of fire. 
how would you describe if Remy was a person, what would he be? Oh my gosh. I, I think he's kind of like a Shia LaBeouf, like a little bit unpredictable, a little bit weird, but also you just like love him. You can't get enough of him. Okay. So like, I think listeners can tell you're starting to feel warmer. You're smiling in a way you weren't before. So I'll, I'll interrupt or I'll start before I hit record, but if I notice you're stiff and I'll, I'll give you some sort of personal question. I like hmm. pets one. Cause even if they don't have pets, they're like, well, I got a couple kids. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, I, and I have to be like, Oh my God, that's the best joke I've ever heard. So I asked the pets question I've asked, um, last meal on earth. People get really excited about that one. Mm. I've also asked if you had to pick between these next two things and one has to leave your life forever, but one you can keep pizza or ice cream, which are you keeping, which you getting rid of forever. Really interesting conversations emerge from there. So anyways, I say this as if I'm engineering their audio. I'm not, I'm engineering them mm. because I need them to chill and relax and speak like a person. A lot of people get a head voice. This, this affects hosts too. You start to get a head voice. You're like, welcome to the show on this show. It's like, whew. <laughs> like try pushing the air in front of you by tucking your hands under your armpits and pushing. You get very mm. little power. It's very tense. But when you relax your shoulders and press through the chest, you have this nice intonation to your voice, first of all, but you get more power as an individual. And that's where I need you to be. You have to sound like you and also speak like you. And it's hard to do that because it is not natural to be interviewed or to do an interview. Like we're all acutely aware we're performing and people will listen to this. It's not the same. So when you hear somebody speak naturally, it's planned, it's practiced. When you hear a conversation, that's like amazing banter between friends. They know how to perform and mimic amazing banter. It is in some ways different. The context is different for the listener. So it's different for the performer. And it's your job as the host to get that environment put together proactively so that everybody you talk to feels at ease and feels like they can speak honestly. Hmm. That's great. I, I was going to ask you about uh, sort of what you say after the guests stop speaking, but I'll leave that for another time. So we're running out of time. And I want to ask about something else, which is um, what are your favorite sitcoms teach us about how to end a podcast episode? Because that's one of the other things where, again, I think, like you said, beginning, everyone gets sort of like that head voice where they get all uh, ramped up and then they get a little bit of a shallow voice or maybe a little bit crispy. And then the same thing happens when you end the podcast where you're just kind of like, okay, well, um, we'll see you in the next one and uh, check the show notes. And uh, I guess that's it. Right. But how really should we approach it? And also, uh, you know, what do your favorite sitcoms teach us about how to, how to approach it? You met, you mentioned my uh, favorite sitcoms. So my, one of my favorite sitcoms is Scrubs which is famous for the voiceover kind of tying it all together in pithy fashion with a, you know, uplifting indie song or an emotional indie song. Uh, another one of my favorite sitcoms is new girl. And on new girl, they yes. talk about uh, one of the characters, Nick is about to break up with his girlfriend and, Oh no, I'm sorry. The girlfriend is about to move and they want, he wants to stay with her and wants to leave a memorable imprint on her life as she moves, as she leaves. Mm -hmm. And he says, he's going to give her the goosebumps walk away, which he's going to say something profound and like leave right? Like leave it on a strong note and they make fun yeah. of him and he can't do it. And he's bumbling. And that's kind of like a lot of us. Like, it's like, we, we need to give them a goosebumps walk away. Uh, we need to give them that final moment, that final pithy insight, a quote from a guest, a thing you say, uh, a beat or two or three or 17 of music, just sitting with a thought and a feeling. And way too often we try to give you these like tangible takeaway steps. We're like stuffing stuff into the space you need to feel and start forming a strong memory of our work. Or way too often we end with the credits with a whimper. Um, 
you know, music, narration, your quotes in the interview, your guest quotes, all of these are tools you can use. And I think that's how you got to end. You got to end, leave them with a goosebumps, walk away. Hmm. I love that. Uh, wrapping up here and, uh, or getting close to wrapping up here, uh, given that you have a podcast that reviews other podcasts, um, I'd first love to have you sort of deconstruct a Swyfels members podcast for a proprietary first was kind Jay Kunzo podcast audit speed style. <laughs> Um, and then after that, I'd love to hear about a couple other examples of um, some of your favorite shows. But first, um, the we, we sort of decided ahead of time, but it's uh, Ramley John was kind enough to offer up his podcast, the Product Led Podcast, which I believe you listened to the episode with Andrew mm-hmm. Kaplan. And um, we've never done this before, so I'll just say, what do you think? <laughs> so a, a show is a combination of four things. The premise the format, which is like how you structure, how the episode flows and feels. So the structure and the performance. So the, uh, the format or the experience, the talent. So the host, and then the community that emerges. So it's, mm. it's hard for me to gauge the community as an external observer. So let me, let me talk about the three things from, from Ramley's show, the premise, the format and the talent. Yeah. Um, and I really do appreciate Ramley being, if, if you're listening, being vulnerable here. Uh, Cause I, this all comes from a place of love. I want you to get better and have a great show. So the premise, so the, they talk about growth and, and specifically product-led growth. And I wonder where the hook is. So this is a show about product-led growth. Unlike other shows about product-led growth, only this show, what? You know, it, it's kind of a general interview show with people that have some level of success or worked for brands that do. And I feel like that can, you can have a more, a firmer point of view. What is something within product-led growth that you'd like to explore more deeply every episode? Not each episode, but all the time, every episode. It's not specific enough. Mm. Um, and I think the way to do that is, is try and figure out what, what frustrates you. What is not working about product-led growth or not explored enough or not said enough out loud? We're all thinking this. We're not saying it. I'm going to be the one that says it. And I'm going to explore that every episode. Um, it needs that hook. And uh, I think if you Google my name and then six hooks, I did an article, uh, I mentioned Andrew Davis before, but he kind of taught me six different types of hooks. He came out yeah. of TV. So he's, he's, he knows a thing or two about production at a high level. So mm-hmm. um, Ramley, if you're needing it, if you need it, six, six different types of hooks um, are available somewhere on the marketing show or on his blog. Um, so that's the premise. Let's get specific. Let's get a hook. The format now flows from the premise. If you know what you're exploring, if you know the hypothesis of the entire show, you know how to structure the experience. And it's the same deal with the, the kind of every interview show in B2B. It's like, who are you? What do you do? How'd you get here? What's your backstory? About this thing that you've done before that you seem good at. Tell me about that. You know, it sort of like follows those same beats. And I think you can do with some segmentation. Hmm. Now you can segment it in a visible way. In other words, people know the blocks you're moving through. Our next segment is called X. During this segment, we try to do Y, right? And, or A, and then we do B. So you have the segmentation of an interview. It really livens up the experience and causes people to stick with ultimately just another interview show. Um, then there's the all, then there's the uh, the sort of flow of it all. So I mentioned the format and the structure of it. The flow of it, I do feel like there needs to be a little bit clearer delineation between when are you speaking to me, the listener, versus the guest, and it kind of it moved together because it felt a little bit rushed. Um, Ramley's very smart, very inquisitive, asks really great questions. And I think what you can do there, Ramley, is in your interview questions and even in your voiceover, draw it out a little bit, slow down your pace, I've noticed. And this maybe is talking about the third category, talent. 
but slow, really slow down your pace and really draw out what you're explaining. Because I noticed you would say something and I'd be like, wait, what was that? And in an audio experience, your listener is always slightly behind what you're saying because they have to really interpret it in the brain. You know, there's not a visual cue. They can't go back very easily. So slow it down and really explain, you know, who we're talking to today and why and articulate those questions very succinctly and clearly. Um, and, and then you can add on a technique called signposting. It's like, hey, Andrew, our guest today just gave a really interesting answer. Andrew, I just want to pull out one thing you said. Boom, this one thing. You're just saying to the listener, I don't want you to miss this. I'm putting a sign here because it's important. And in an interview show where people tend to go on and on and on, as I am doing now, um, <laughs> I think signposting is one of the best skills to develop because it makes sure that people pull out of dense answers, these little handles, these little memorable things that they can stick with uh, after they leave. So Ramley, uh, first of all, congratulations on a couple dozen episodes. I think you've passed 30 or 40 by now. That is a feat in and of itself. And I hope any of this stuff was useful to you and others listening. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. And thanks for, again, to, uh, to Ramley for offering it up. And it's also a great episode. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes. Now for all the shows that you've heard and watched as well, um, which are your favorites? Which are the ones that you personally connect with and, and why? Yeah. I mean, long, long time ago, I discovered Radio Lab, but I've mentioned them a little bit already on this show. And, you know, I think the reason you call something your favorite has nothing to do with the objective nature of how good or bad it is. My mm. favorite basketball team is the New York Knicks. They're <laughs> also the worst basketball team. So my favorite is also the worst. Like, really think about that. Mm. We're so obsessed with being number one in the category and we have 10,000 people who listen. We have 2,000 people on our subscription list. We have 5,000 people in our membership group. We brag about that. And that's missing the point. It's, I guess it's nice social proof, but that is in no way necessary. It's, it's not sufficient. You need that personal connection. And the personal connection is this irrational, emotional bias. So when I discovered Radiolab, I was in the, the time of my life where I was like disillusioned by marketing. I wanted to get back to telling stories. And now here I discover this science show, which could be dry and academic, just like business content, but it was rich and innovative and emotional and human. And it was like, God, that is the stuff I want to bring over to the business world. So that's one of my all-time favorite shows for that reason. And I would say the same thing applies to Anthony Bourdain's TV shows. Um, the late great Bourdain is a storytelling idol of mine. I probably mention him on every single guest interview appearance that I have on everyone else's show. So anyone who's followed me across podcasts is like enough with Bourdain already, man. Uh, no, well but it's like Bourdain could pull out meaning from the seemingly day to day. That's a magical skill. And that applies to mm. work. Most specifically for most people, like most of us are not traveling the world, getting to talk to these interesting people, but Bourdain really sat down at a grandmother's table, right? He was in an exotic place, but doing a very mundane thing at a bar, sampling some local food. He was at a, a food truck or a, food, a street food vendor. Um, and he was talking to someone over dinner at their childhood home, mundane daily things like we deal with in the business world all the time. Yet he found incredible emotion, incredible insight, deep, deep things. I think like the name of his show on CNN was Parts Unknown. Those were the parts unknown that he reached, not the physical locations, but those emotional intellectual things. We need more of that in the business world. So I think that's, that's some of what I'm trying to do, albeit poorly at this point, um, here in the working world. Hmm. My last question, which I've been calling my, my guy Raz question is, uh, for all the things that you've shared and the audience that you've built your success as a marketer, however you want to define that, how much would you attribute it to luck and happenstance versus your own hard work and, and ethic? 
I was born with the door ajar. That's how I'd phrase it. Some people are born and the door is locked. Some people are born and the door is locked and has an electric fence in front of it and a shark tank in front of that. I was born with loving parents. I was born a cis white, um, you know, male in uh, Connecticut in the year I was born. And I, I had, the world was my oyster the moment I popped out of the womb and I did nothing to earn that. I was damn lucky and I still am. And I reap the rewards of that every single damn day. That said, you're also working hard, right? It's just that my version of hard work is to push through that door as hard as I can and also make sure I'm bringing other people with me. You know, I feel like the sense of gratitude and also guilt a little bit um, that I didn't really earn some of this stuff. And it's like, well, what can I do with these skills? What can I do with the fact that I have incredible privilege to help other people? You know, as simple as offering discounts into my workshop and as more complex as trying to figure out how do I make stuff better in this niche for all the people in it. Um, so I was born with the door ajar. I had this massive amount of luck given to me and I still had a job to do and I still work my ass off every day to do it. Um, but it's the beginning point that I did not decide at all for myself. So hmm. luck and hard work, the answer is yes, but I have to know where each of them applies. Hmm. Jay, you've been a wealth of wisdom. Really, really, truly appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with us today. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Jay for sharing that absolute masterclass on show running. To be honest, I was nervous for our conversation since I look up to Jay and I put a lot of his concepts into action for this podcast and man, he really brought it. So it'd be great if you could pop on Twitter and thank him for coming on the show and sharing everything. Two of the biggest takeaways for me were one, the premise is really at the heart of producing something magical. A great premise combines important topics with a unique hook. The topics you explore are what you're exploring, but the hook is how you'll explore them. And usually the how part is really neglected. So I thought that was super interesting and I love that concept from him. And secondly, Jay has some amazing thoughts on asking questions and leading an interview. It made me realize that it doesn't really matter what question you ask, or even if you ask a question at all, it's all about spurring up thoughts and inspiring your guests to deliver great content for your audience. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast, as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.